Chapter Six of the Little Foresters A Story of Field and Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. The Little Foresters A Story of Field and Woods by Clarence Hawkes. Chapter Six How Cock Robin Saved His Family. From the morning of our first acquaintance, Cock Robin has ever been the cheeriest of birds, and as the bird family are noted for their good spirits, this is a very strong statement. It was the first of April. The morning sun was sending its bright rays into my chamber window to shame me into wakefulness but presently I was awakened by a perfect flood of the most bewitching birdsong. I started up, rubbed my eyes, and listened, but there was no mistaking the sound. Cheery, 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 cheer up, cheer up, cheer up, and in the clearest, strongest notes that I had ever heard from a robin. It may be that the song seemed the sweeter and clearer because it was the first robin song of the year. But aside from that, there was always a peculiar tenderness in the singing of Cock Robin that I have never heard equaled. I went to the window and, pulling the curtain aside a little, looked cautiously out, not wishing to disturb so welcome a friend, although I did want a glimpse of the performer. There he was upon the old elm, not ten feet from my window, and I stood very still, lest I might disturb him. He was standing erect, with his red breast swelled to its utmost, and singing as though he would burst if the song were stopped, but no one wished to stop it. He was a fine specimen of the American robin. His ruffs were very marked, and his entire plumage was rich and warm in tone. All of this was in direct contradiction of the rule that the dullest colored birds are the sweetest singers, for he still poured out that delicious song. Presently he flew away to look for his breakfast, and it was as though a bit of heaven had departed. Then it was that I noticed a peculiar thing about him, by which I could always tell him from his fellows. When he started from the elm, I thought that he was going to the cedar, but not so, for he turned and went ten feet to the west of it. Ah, he is going to the driveway, I said, but this guess was too previous for he swung still more to the west and fluttered down into the garden. How queerly he flies, I thought. Perhaps one of his wings is shorter than the other. This I afterwards learned was the case, for he always flew tacking a little to the right, and his destiny was as hard to determine as to tell what a cross-eyed man is looking at. Cock Robin hung about the buildings for several days after his first appearance. As he was so sweet a singer, you may be sure that we encouraged him by throwing out bread crumbs and other dainties, and by not frightening him. 
After about a week he disappeared for several days, but finally one morning I heard him again. On going to the window, I discovered that he was not alone, but perched upon the branch of the elm near him was a smaller robin, whom I guessed was a female. This guess proved to be the right one, for Cock Robin had been away courting and had now brought home his wife, and together they were looking over the country and deciding where to build. We called the newcomer Brownie, from the dull color of her plumage, and in time grew to think quite as much of her as of Cock Robin himself. They finally decided to build in the elm, and late in April set to work upon the nest, and for about a week there was great activity in the Robin family. They were continually flying to and fro, bringing straw and mud, and also bits of twine which I supplied to help along the good work. In about a week the house in the elm was ready for occupancy, and Brownie took possession and proceeded to lay five blue eggs. For the next few days Cock Robin sang and sang, and from the sweetness of his song I knew that Brownie was setting, and that he was singing not for me, but for his little mate upon the nest. One afternoon early in May there came up a violent windstorm, and the great elm bent and writhed and thrashed its long arms upon the roof of the house. When the winds had stopped blowing and the rain and hail had ceased, so that small sounds could be heard, I discovered a great commotion in the family of Cock Robin. Cock Robin and Brownie were flying to and fro, crying, Quit, quit, quit! So I went out to investigate. The reason for their cries was not far distant, for there in the yard was the mud house that they had builded with so much pains, and the eggs were all broken but two. I knew the robins would not use these eggs again, so I carried them into the house for a keepsake. But the robin is a cheery fellow, always ready to forget his grief, so Cock Robin and Brownie soon ceased their cries, and the very next day began building again in the elm in a more secure spot. Again, the little mud house was refashioned, and more eggs were laid, and again Cock Robin sang for Brownie, but he could not help the rest of us hearing. After the young birds came, he was very busy getting worms for them, so he did not have so much time for singing. One morning he was flying home to the house with an angleworm, when Sparrowhawk spied him. Now of all the birds that fly, Cock Robin most hated and feared Sparrowhawk, who was the cruelest and most vicious of all the hawks. Sparrowhawk kept very quiet until he saw where the robin went with the worm, and then followed as swift and as sure as death. Cock Robin and Brownie fought bravely but they had to keep just out of his way to avoid being killed themselves, so finally they were driven from the nest, and Sparrowhawk proceeded to eat up the nestlings before their very eyes. 
I arrived upon the scene just in time to see Sparrowhawk fly away, closely pursued by the two robins. Again despair reigned in the family of these much-afflicted birds. We people, possessed of higher intelligence and less pluck, would probably have given up at this point, but not so the robins. It was a long time before I could find their third nest, but finally I happened upon it in the stump of an old apple tree. With one more mishap, narrowly averted by cock-robin's pluck and presence of mind, a family was finally reared. It was nearly the middle of July when the family was hatched, and even then they had a narrow escape of which I was a distant witness. I had been down in the meadows one morning trout-fishing, and was returning to the house when I stopped to rest at a favorite seat under a maple in the pasture. I had been seated but a minute when I heard the distressed quit, quit, quit of a robin. At first I could not locate the cries, but finally I decided that they came from the old stump where Cock Robin lived, although it was nearly forty rods away. Usually I could not have heard a robin at that distance, but the morning was very clear, and what little breeze there was blew in my direction. To make sure I stood up, and by straining my sight, could just see a robin flying wildly about the old stump, but no cause for the commotion could I see. But it was very evident from the bird's rapid flight that something was the matter, so I resorted to the use of a small opera glass that I frequently carry for the study of birds. With the aid of the glass, I could see the robin quite plainly. It was brownie, and something was clearly the matter. There was also another robin coming like the flight of an arrow from the woods nearby, and by the circular manner of its flight I knew that the second bird was cock-robin. It was very strange. What could it all mean? Then I fell to examining the old stump closely through my glass, and when I finally discovered the cause of all this commotion, my astonishment was so great that the glass nearly fell from my hand. There upon the stump of the apple tree, wriggling and writhing every minute nearer and nearer to the nest of young birds, was the hideous form of a huge black snake, who was known among the little foresters as Black Lightning. I was so far away from the scene of this tragedy that I could do nothing, for the snake would reach the nest long before I could reach the tree. I could merely stand where I was and see how it all ended. My sympathy was all that I could give the birds this time. Up, up crept the hideous, writhing form of the snake, with Brownie darting at it and the snake striking at her every time she came near enough for a blow. Every second brought him nearer to the nest, and I could see no possible escape for the young birds. True, Cock Robin was coming like a brave knight-errant to their rescue, but what could he do against the ugly snake? Black Lightning had now wriggled his way up to within two or three feet of the nest. 
If Cock Robin is to do anything, it must be done quickly. And as though in answer to my thought, he shot into the circle, swept by my glass. Straight up to the nest he flew, and hovered a moment over it, almost within reach of the snake. He then drew back two or three rods, where both he and Brownie circled about watching the snake intently. He has given up the fight, I thought, and I was disappointed, for I had expected to see so valiant a bird make a brave stand for his nest and his young. Then the snake wriggled a foot or two nearer the nest and raised his ugly head for the, his prize. But instead of making a meal of the fledglings, he suddenly began to wriggle about as though discomfited by something, and then, to my great astonishment, he began to descend in haste. When a few feet from the ground, he let go his hold and tumbled into the grass. I did not wait to see more, but made all haste across lots to the old stump to discover, if possible, how Cock Robin had foiled his enemy. When I reached the tree, nothing was to be seen of the snake, and Cock Robin and his mate were twittering softly about the nest. "'How in the world did you do it?' I asked involuntarily, speaking aloud, and as though in answer to my query, Cock Robin lifted something from the nest and dropped it upon the ground at the foot of the tree. I stooped to examine it. It was a spray of three or four very bright green leaves of some plant that I was not familiar with, having a very rank odor. I picked the leaves up to examine them more closely, but the sap from the broken end of the branch made my skin burn, and my eyes began to smart and water from looking at it, while a nausea like seasickness seized me. With a shudder I flung the poisonous plant away, and none too soon, for in two hours my hand was swollen badly, and my eyes were nearly closed with inflammation. I searched all my books upon botany to identify the plant, but have never been able to do so. I am confident that it is not generally found in the temperate zone, but with some poisonous tropical plant, the seed of which had, by some strange chance, been dropped in our soil. But even so, it is still a mystery how Cock Robin knew where it was growing, and by what instinct he knew that it was poisonous to the snake. I had often read of like incidents in tropical countries, but had been doubtful of their truth. But here was a demonstration of it at my very door. After all, was it any more wonderful than a thousand things that we see and hear in the animal and plant life about us every day? Life without intelligence living intelligently, and small creatures without reason showing a deeper intelligence in many things than man. I am still pondering over these things, even as the poet Bryant wondered as he saw the wild goose taking its unerring flight through the trackless heavens without a compass, yet guided by some instinct or intelligence across a continent to the very inlet or bay, or even the nesting place, 
that it has left six months before. Note, the author has frequently seen it stated that the leaves of the white ash dropped upon a snake have a paralyzing effect. It is also said that some ground birds protect their nests by partially covering them with white ash leaves. End of chapter 6